Well, glad to be here this morning, and I would echo the thanks to all of you mothers out there. Um, what would we do without mothers? Well, we wouldn't be here. <laughs> if you have your Bibles this morning, um, turn with me to the book of Philippians. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew rack in front of you there. I'm going to be preaching from the fourth chapter of the book of Philippians today, continuing what is working out to be the five-year plan so far. I did the math recently with this kind of frequency and pace of preaching. If I were to preach through the Psalms, it would take me 185 years, <laughs> just so you know. And that's why Brandon did the, is doing the Psalms and not me. <laughs> um, we have... In, in chapter 4 in Philippians is where we're at. And we've come to this portion of Scripture in the last chapter of the book of Philippians where the Apostle Paul is dealing with Christian thought and practice. And we will be focused on verses 8 and 9 today. But we must understand these verses do not stand alone. They're inseparably linked to the verses I preached on last time, verses 4 through 7 you can remember back that far. And this is regarding life's anxieties and how we should handle them. Today we have Paul's positive instruction for replacement thinking. And what I mean is he's already talked about the problem we have with uh, anxiety, with negative and wrong thinking um, when it comes to our anxieties. And now we have the positive right thinking that must replace the former. And last time we learned that our anxieties are made worse when we dwell on them. And all the possibilities of future outcomes that we have no control over. We're to take them to the Lord in prayer. Trust in the promise of God that he will guard our hearts and minds and give us peace. The most important factor in all of this is the sovereignty of God over all things. God is in control. We are not. The reason we can trust his promise, uh, his promises specifically in this chapter is precisely because he's in control of everything. He works all things according to his own sovereign will because whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. In Psalm 135, 6. So today, we're moving to the next phase in God's plan for what we're to do with our anxieties, i.e., bring them to the Lord in prayer. To how, then, to how and what we should focus our thinking on instead. Remember, this is about our thinking and our practice. And I want to start by reading out the passage from, from last time and go through the two verses for today. So we'll read a, a bit of a, it's not a large section, but more verses than what we're really going to be focused on today. So I want to start in, in verse 4 of chapter 4 and read through verse 9, if you'll follow with me. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 
Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Would you pray with me this morning? Our Father in heaven, thank you for this opportunity to gather as, uh, as your church. Lord, we thank you that we can open your word and hear what you have said and how you have taught us and how you will continue to teach us. And I pray, Father, today that your word would resonate, that your word would do its work in our hearts and our minds. Lord, help us to be reminded today that to meditate on your word is life. And we're so grateful that you have given it. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, maybe it's just me, but even to this day, if someone says the word meditation, I immediately picture someone sitting with their legs wrapped like a pretzel and their backs of their hands on their knees, finger to thumb, and making humming noises. I can't help it, that's just what I think of. Um, something associated with relaxation and emptying your mind of distractions or something like that. But what is biblical meditation and what does it look like? And what does it lead to? And when we refer to meditation in Christian circles, it should mean something completely different. Meditation isn't a bad word, but it certainly can be practiced in ungodly and dangerous ways. When we talk about meditation, and when we mention it today, what we're talking about is not body position uh, or sounds we make, and especially not an emptying of the mind. Okay, Emptying our minds is not a Christian concept and shouldn't be employed. God gave us our minds so that we would use them, not disengage them. When I couldn't sleep as a kid, my mom would say, just shut off your brain. All right. yeah. It never worked. I just thought about not thinking. Right. Uh, that, was, that was bad advice. Okay. Don't tell my mom I said that. Yeah. <laughs> Probably shouldn't have said that on Mother's Day. <laughs> if you know my mom, don't tell her. But it's not biblical advice. Um, we have a mind so we can meditate on the things of God, on what is true. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, Colossians 3, 2. And considering the constant battle over our thoughts, Peter makes sense, saying, therefore, prepare, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what does meditation have to do with our passage today? I want to answer that question now with my first of three points, uh, and the first point being the bulk of the sermon. So point number one, meaningful meditation matters. The M&Ms, if you like. Verse eight of our text is Paul's list of subjects to think about, meditate on. Instead of the negative meditation, that led to the need for verse 6, which was a command to not be anxious about anything, but to bring it to the Lord in prayer. 
when I first moved here from the Bay Area in 1988, it was like the end of the world. Right? Moving to this hick town with one street light was like a Shakespearean tragedy. Right? As, as a 15-year-old entering high school, at least that's how I felt at the time, I mean, I had friends. I, I had a girlfriend. Yeah. Nobody asked my opinion. So I sat in my room and I played the saddest music I could find. And I found it. I could order eight CDs or 12 cassettes from the Columbia House Music Catalog for the low price of one cent, <laughs> plus a chance to get even more music free. All right, that's how the ad went. Sad songs with titles like All By Myself, All right, With or Without You. I was ridiculous. Right. My mom, now this is, you can tell my mom this, my mom rightly told me to get out of my room and stop listening to that stuff because it wasn't good for me. But I love to be miserable, right? Why are we like that? Don't pretend you haven't enjoyed your own misery at some times. We shouldn't be doing that. We need, to, we need to snap out of it. I got over it, probably because I met my future wife. At least that's her version of why I got over it, but... In my last sermon, we talked about the damage we do to our spiritual lives when we're wrongly dwelling on or meditating on our sorrows, our griefs, our sicknesses, our anxieties, or at least our perceptions of them. It's not spiritually healthy for us, and for most of us, it's even not physically healthy. You know, I love to quote Charles Spurgeon. He said, in regard to wrong meditation, to ruminate upon our sorrows is but to increase them. To turn them over and over and over again is but to express from them the bitterest drops which they contain. The more the turbid pool is stirred, the blacker will it become. So Paul starts off verse 8 in our text by saying, finally, he is wrapping up this letter and making a transition, but what is final here is what is final in the process of dealing with anxieties, which is why he moves on to meditation. Not a new subject and not the end of the letter. Most of our Bibles uh, uh, end verse 8 by saying something like, think about these things. This is what is being communicated by Paul. But the Greek word he used is logizomai, which literally means dwell on. And it is the imperative form, which means this is a command. The command is to think, but even stronger, to dwell on, to camp out there, to meditate on. Sometimes translated as to reckon or account. And these are banking terms. You, you add up the numbers uh, to make the numbers right, you reckon the account. Whatever you reckon is in the account is what is in the account. It is true. It is the reality based on the facts. At the end of verse 8, Paul is commanding Christians to dwell on or meditate on the list of subjects he just wrote out. And as we'll see, these subject, subjects are reality based in facts. And why does Paul want them to meditate on the subjects in verse 8? Because in, verse, in verses 6 and 7, after commanding them to not be anxious about anything, but to make all to, to take all those things 
to God and to make them known to him through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. He promises them the peace of God, which will guard their hearts and their minds in Christ Jesus. And now he's saying, instead of those things you were anxiously worrying about and fearing and wrongly meditating on, which bring your thoughts further from God, instead, meditate on these nine subjects. And let's look at them together. What is the very first thing on the list in verse 8? Truth. He says, whatever is true. Whatever is true. Meditate on that. Now, it's true that 2 plus 2 is 4. And it's true that it's daytime right now. I was gotten, got a little worried earlier. I was going to talk about the sunshine and it was snowing, but it is daytime right now. And the sun is shining above the clouds. And we can look at mathematics and be reminded that God is the creator of the universe and has ordered it just so and set its boundaries and rules and those mathematical equations absolutely point us to God's omniscience. And we can look at the fact that it is daytime now and be reminded that God created the sun and put it in place to give us light and nurture life on the earth, which he is sustaining by keeping the sun burning in its exact location in relationship to the earth, thereby pointing us to his omnipotence. He is all-powerful. Those things are true, but what Paul's really getting at here are the scriptures themselves where, incidentally, we can learn about God's attributes of omniscience and omnipotence and all the other wonderful things that he has revealed about himself. Whatever is true, he says, what is it? What is true? What is truth? Well, Jesus gives us the answer when he spoke to God in, in John 17, 17. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Even in the Old Testament, the psalmist says of God, the sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. What are we to replace our wrong meditation with? Meaningful meditation on whatever is true. Where do I find truth? In the word of God, the Bible. That is truth. That is where you find truth. That is where you read and you meditate on truth. You can read or listen to and meditate on all kinds of things apart from the scriptures to try and find truth if you want to. But why would you want to? The one who created all things and sustains all things by the word of his power is the source of all truth. When large crowds of people turned away from Jesus because of his words, he asked Simon Peter if he wanted to go away also. Peter's response is pure truth. He said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. My friends, I believe there is no subject on this list greater than truth, especially the truth Peter just declared. And I know there are anxieties in your life right now. There's uncertainty, there's pain, there's sickness, conflict, unforgiveness, bitterness, sorrow, broken relationships, your own sin. It's a lot to think about, and it weighs heavy. And so I ask you Peter's question, to whom will you go? 
meditate on that question. I hope the answer is to go to the one who has the words of eternal life. There are no more important words than those of eternal life. So what are they? The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Acts 17, 30 and 31. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. John 10, 28. That is truth. Those are the words of eternal life, and they're found in this book, the Bible. And the God of the Bible has revealed himself as the creator of everything, and as completely and utterly holy and righteous and perfect, and that we are not. We are sinful and already stand condemned before him because of sin. But did you hear those words of life? Are you meditating on them even now? This is our meditation when we're anxious and fearful because of sin. To whom will you go? Christian, did you hear those verses and were you reminded of the truth that you have been forgiven and you have been given eternal life? Do you know that the one thing you have most reason to be anxious about in this life, your sin, has been paid for and forgiven? Did you forget that you will never perish and no one can ever snatch you out of the hand of the one who saved you? Did you hear it? Do you see how meditating on that truth can free you from the burdens of this world? If you are here and you have never come to faith in Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior by repenting of your sin, and that is turning from your sin and turning toward God, and trusting in the finished work of Christ on the cross, on the cross, why not? If that's you, considering your sin, can I ask you, to whom will you go? And this is the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I pray you will meditate on that today. Jesus offers eternal life as a gift to the humble in heart. Will you set aside your pride? Will you finally give up your attempts at being a good person to pay for your sin? You cannot bribe God with worthless things. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Let's be real. Even if starting right now, you could never sin again, which we cannot do, but if you could, what do you do with your past sin? 
that sin has not been atoned for, and you're still on the hook for it. You see, we cannot escape what we've done. A thief cannot stand before the judge and say, from now on, I won't steal. The judge would say, that's great, but you already stole. Your crimes must be punished, and it's the same with our sin. And people, if we're going to meditate on whatever is true, there is no greater truth than that your sins can be forgiven today. It is the truth of the gospel that makes the rest of this passage an encouragement to the Christian and a call to repentance for the one who will by faith come to the cross of Christ for salvation. This is the best news. It is the most loving news that we could share with anyone here today. How much does God love you? But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 8. I ask again, to whom will you go? For he has the words of eternal life. And that phrase, whatever is true, encompasses everything in the Bible. But to meditate on the gospel of Jesus Christ is a balm to the soul. When we stay focused on our griefs and sorrows and all our other circumstances and do not, through meditation, seek the comfort and freedom of the truth, we will remain in bondage to those griefs and sorrows. Through meditating on God's word, we find there is purpose in suffering, that broken relationships are mended when we forgive others as Christ has forgiven us, and that is without waiting for us to change. That's how he forgave us. No, he changes us. That is the point. There are many more biblical truths that we can meditate on to combat the lies of the world and the lies we believe about our circumstances. But unless we meditate on the truth, the lie will gain an even tighter grasp on our minds. The world's thinking is so darkened and veiled by lies we can find ourselves entangled in it and depressed and confused by it. We must firmly plant ourselves in the reading and the study of the word of God. It is truth. Do you think we can trust Hollywood or the government or social media or college professors to provide the truth? Friends, these arbiters of the truth can't even tell the difference between a boy and a girl. Their minds are so blinded. And our country murders a million babies in the womb every year, not caring that the word of God says, For you formed me, you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. Psalm 139, 13. And praise God, he will forgive abortion. If you repent of that sin, you can be rid of it forever. In 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul wrote to Pastor Timothy about how Christians are to behave in the church because it is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And the idea being that the church which abides by and relies on the word of God is God's visible representation on this earth that is supposed to hold up, support, and reinforce the foundations of the truth. Whatever the world does, we must unswervingly hold to the truth. 
Meditate on the word of God and you will know what is true and it will free you of the anxieties that come when your values clash with the culture around you. It's no easy road, but we must set our minds on heavenly things. Charles Spurgeon on right meditation said, Christian, meditate much on heaven. It will help thee to press on and to forget the toil of the way. Now we spent a bit of time on that first one, so I want to remind you that we're thinking of these subjects in the context of replacing our anxieties, thoughts, and the lies that we believe about our circumstances. And the next one on the list is whatever is honorable. And that is those things that are worthy of reverence, things that are noble, worthy of respect. Meditate on them. This is intentional, right? We must discipline ourselves to practice this. It's so easy to sit and listen to sad songs. We must bring our anxiety to the Lord and ask him to help change our thinking when it's off. But don't expect change if you won't submit to what is honorable, his word. Whatever is just, and some translations have right, whatever is right. This means whatever is righteous. As we meditate on this, we must ask ourselves the question, how do I know what is righteous? I'm glad you asked. Here again, there's only one source for what is righteous or just, and that is God himself. He is the creator of all and the rule giver. He sets the standard by which we measure what is righteous. If you want to meditate on what is righteous or just, go to the word of God and meditate on Jesus Christ. For he is called the righteous one. When you're bogged down by the cares of the world, remember, Christian, it is the righteousness of Christ, not yours, that you are clothed in. God looks at you through the righteousness of Christ and declares you justified in his sight. Meditate on that when you find your thoughts drifting to self-assurance. Whatever is pure. This is about all things morally clean and undefiled, free from sin. Who has determined what is morally clean? What being undefiled or free from sin means? Well, God has set the standard. God is that standard. This same Greek word for pure is used to describe Jesus. 1 John 3, 3, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. This is not just that Jesus did pure things, which he did. This means he is pure. He is the very definition of complete moral purity. Meditate on that truth and how it relates to the righteousness you've been given at salvation. If that doesn't bring you to joy in the face of life's hardships, you've forgotten how evil your sin is that caused Jesus to have to go to the cross. Whatever is lovely, those things that are gracious or generous and patient, these things are acceptable and pleasing to God. And this is the only place in the New Testament where we find this word. We can ask ourselves, 
is this thing I'm thinking about doing or are those things others are doing lovely? Are they gracious? Are they, are they acceptable to God? Meditate on these things instead of those things which tend to draw you into sin. Whatever is commendable. Some translations have of good report or of good repute. And this is something well spoken of or highly regarded or well thought of. Is your source for these things from God or from the world? We are to avoid meditating on what is reprehensible or deserving of condemnation. And then we get to the last two subjects on Paul's list, which seem to sum up the previous subjects. There's some interweaving of meanings in some of these words Paul uses. When you're looking at one, you can see the other and find another connected to it, and so on. And the last two are any excellence and anything worthy of praise. We can see in these two that the other seven subjects cannot help but be excellent and praiseworthy. It is all these subjects that Paul tells the church to think about these things at the end of verse 8. When he says, whatever is, before each of these, he is saying, whatever you find in the word of God that fits these subjects, meditate on them. It must come from the word of God because there are all kinds of things the world says are praiseworthy and completely go against the word of God. The word of God must be our source. Dwell on them. Fill your minds with the truth of the word of God. Don't just sit back and wallow in everything going on around you that is negative. Don't make determinations about what is true based on your emotions or your circumstances. Your emotions and your circumstances are not the measure of truth. Does that mean your circumstances and emotions are not real? No. But when you make judgments about why you're going through them and you conclude something that's not true, you'll find no peace. And we come to the second point I want to make, and that is, that has to do with the outcome when Paul's command to think about these things is followed. Point number two is, practicing Paul's pattern produces peace. Yeah, I know I went a little crazy with the alliteration here, but I couldn't help myself. Look at verse nine with me. And Paul says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. We remember now that Paul spent several months in the city of Philippi, including a brief yet important stint in jail for casting an evil spirit out of a young girl who made money for some men by fortune-telling. This was a Roman colony and a very important city in the region, yet a city run by mob rule, at times, and full of pagan worship. Paul had discipled these people while he was there. They learned the gospel and Christ's teaching while he was with them. They received the word of God from him and accepted it as such, like Paul praised the Thessalonian church for doing. When he talks about what they have heard, he's referring to his reputation, what is said about his character, the testimonies of others as they would have heard. And lastly, he spoke about what they had seen in him. Here he's, talking, he's taking them back 
to when he was with them. Remember that Paul is writing this letter from a Roman prison. So he's calling their attention to what they saw in him with their own eyes when he was there. They saw how he lived his life and how it matched up with what he taught them according to God's word. And that is what he means when he says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. And he says, practice these things. This is a command to practice Paul's pattern. To practice what things? Well, everything they learned and received and heard and saw in him. And this would include the fact that he lived out the example of meditating on what is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent and praiseworthy. He says, practice these things like he does. Unless the Christian puts these commands into practice, the condition of their minds will not improve. You wonder why you cannot seem to have any positive thoughts and you cannot get rid of your fears and anxieties. You're not practicing Paul's pattern. The church at Philippi, Philippi had plenty of anxiety, plenty to negatively dwell on. Paul is in prison in Rome as he writes this letter, so they're concerned for him. They sent Epaphroditus to bring gifts and, and ministry to Paul, and they heard that Epaphroditus was severely ill, so they're concerned about that. They dealt with conflict and opposition to their faith in their city. They struggled with selfishness and conceit. They had a problem with grumbling and complaining, problems with false teachers and tendencies to forget about the righteousness of Christ. They had unresolved conflict in the church. So you see, Paul is commanding them to do these things, make these things their practice in life, and then he gives them a familiar promise. Not that he will grant them anything, but that to live the way he's commanding them to live produces a favorable result from God. And now in verse 9, he repeats something else. That he said in, in chapter 3, verse 17, he said, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Okay, you can hear in that the implication that their focus had been taken off of what it should have been on, things of the Lord. These are not examples now of Paul bragging about himself and wanting attention on himself. He's calling for the church to imitate him as he imitates Christ. As he walks, that is the pattern of his daily life, the way he lives his life from day to day, as he does so there to imitate that, as he imitates Christ. Not to the praise of Paul, he would reject that idea completely, but to the praise of God. The idea is imitate those who haven't taken their eyes off of Jesus. Okay, what is it then that, that God promises will result from this way of living, meditating on his word? Paul ends verse 9 with this promise, and it's the same promise offered from verse 7. When we bring our anxieties to the Lord in prayer, the promise is peace of mind. Verse 9 says, and the God of peace will be with you. The promise from verse 7 was that this peace is a peace that surpasses all understanding. It blows your mind. A peace that will 
take your troubled mind, bogged down by fear and the troubles of this world, and it will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And friends, these are not just empty words. I cannot emphasize that enough. God does not forget his promises. I know many of you are feeling bogged down even now by sin, by pain, by loss, and many other things that draw your thoughts into dark places. Keep your eyes, your mind, your heart on him. Trust in him alone. The prophet Isaiah said this about God in Isaiah 26, 3 and 4. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. The mind stayed on Christ. Trusting in Christ amid life's hardships is on a firm foundation. He is an everlasting rock, and everything else is sinking sand. You see, he is the God of peace. And no better peace than his wrath being poured out on Jesus Christ in your place. He took it for you. There's one more point I want to make about this passage, and it's this. Point number three, lament is a lifeline. Lament is a lifeline. I believe what we see playing out here in chapter 4 from verses 4 through 10 is a bit of an outline for what biblical lament looks like. From rejoicing in the Lord to the expression of anxiety to bringing it to the Lord in prayer to our minds being guarded in the peace of God to the meditation on what is praiseworthy and the practice of godliness in our lives and back to joy in verse 10. And I realize that, that this sermon can sound a bit like, what are you crying about? It can sound dismissive of suffering. Back in the day when kids complained and cried about dumb things, parents used to say, or, or jokingly say, I'll give you something to cry about. Right. Yeah, you've all heard that phrase, I'm sure. I never said that to my kids. I don't think. But if that were truly being expressed to someone, it implies their suffering or their pain or their problem isn't real. That their tears or the expression of and questioning of suffering is unwarranted. And I want to be clear that your pain and suffering and fear and anxiety, broken relationships, sickness, ongoing sin, etc., it's all real. The scriptures are not denying it, and the scriptures do not ignore it. We must have right thinking about these things, though. We must meditate on them, considering the truth about God, and express our concerns rightly. And earlier in this letter, chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, Paul commanded the Christians to do all things without grumbling or disputing. That you, may, that you may be blameless and innocent. In other words, you would be sinning to be grumbling and disputing with God about things. But do you know that God gave us a biblical way to complain? He gave us a way to express our sorrow 
He gave us a way to tell him we're afraid. He gave us a way to share our dislike for our sicknesses. He gave us a way to grieve and ask why. He gave us a way to cry out to him and regret over our sin and to be tired of it. In a sense, he gave us a way to complain without sinning. It's called lament. A pastor from Indiana wrote in a 2019 article, Lament is the prayer language for God's people as they live in a world marred by sin. It is how we talk to God about our sorrows as we renew our hope in his sovereign care. To cry is human, but to lament is Christian. And N.T. Wright said, It is no part of the Christian vocation then to be able to explain what's happening and why. In fact, it is part of the Christian vocation not to be able to explain and to lament instead. Lament is a deep sense of mourning over real circumstances. It is a biblical concept. In fact, there's an entire book in the Bible called Lamentations. One-third of the book of Psalms are Psalms of lament. We should note, however, that There's a difference between complaining and grumbling and blaming God and lamenting. A biblical godly lament is a progression that doesn't end with the complaint and anger against God, but with praise. Also, lament involves a healthy portion of meditation on the truth, as Paul taught in our passage. I I hope you will turn with me to Psalm 13. Psalm chapter 13, it's a short one. But here's an example of the progression, including meditation on truth. Psalm 13. Psalm 13, to the choir master, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord... Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Here David expresses the anguish over his plight. He expresses his feeling that the Lord had forgotten about him. And the Lord had abandoned him. His enemies are exalted over him, and he mourns over his sorrow, and it goes on all day long. His repeated cry is, how long, O Lord? Meditate on that for a moment. Is that you? Does that describe how you feel sometimes, all the time? 
I want you to know that it's okay. It's okay to feel that way. It's okay to lament and cry out to God in honest grief. In fact, without those deep feelings about sorrow and sadness and pain, loss, or whatever it may be, how would we know the joy and peace of mind that only God can provide? That peace that passes all understanding that will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. But look at how David progresses through this lament. He's crying out to God. This is a prayer, a pleading with God for help, asking God to consider him because he is so deeply burdened that he feels he might die without God's help. But notice the clear transition, the turning point of the lament. He moves to meditation on truth as it relates to who God is and what he's done. In verse 5, it changes. He says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. You see, he's meditating on and reminding himself of what is true. This remembrance causes him to go further. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Though his circumstances haven't changed, his mind is changing. Then he progresses further in verse 6, I will sing to the Lord. Here he's moved on to praise, and not because anything has changed, but because he's now remembered how God has treated him. He says, because he has dealt bountifully with me. There's a reason for lament. Our problem is we often stop short of the transition. Are you good at the expression of sorrow and grief, at the feelings of abandonment by God, but then stop there? Do you stop there feeling justified because in your mind you don't deserve what you're suffering? Did Christ deserve his suffering? Oh, Christ was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. The pains of life are real, and it is good to mourn over them and lament, but don't stop short and forfeit the joy and peace of mind that God promises. Christian, when you find yourself pressed down under the cares of the world, meditate meaningfully on the truth about your Savior, Jesus Christ, and his bountiful dealing with you. Practice Paul's pattern for living that produces peace from the God of peace. Your sins have been forgiven, removed as far as the east is from the west. Rejoice in the Lord amid your pain to the praise of his glory. And if you don't know Jesus as your Savior today and you're still in your sins, to whom will you go? Go to the one who has the words of eternal life. Cry out to him today. He will forgive your sins and give you eternal life. Even if your circumstances don't change, you will be able to rejoice because he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Revelation 21.4. Pray with me.
Father in heaven, you are perfectly holy and righteous. You are all-powerful. You are the creator of the heavens and the earth. Perfect in every way. And we are not. And Lord, you have seen fit to send your son to live a perfect life in our place and to take our place on the cross. Because our sin has brought about the need for punishment. And the punishment for our sin is death. And Christ went to the cross for the joy that was set before him, which is the salvation of sinners to the praise of his glory. Well, Father, help us today if we are Christians, to meditate on these truths in the face of our daily circumstances that are difficult, that are overpowering. Lord, we tend to dwell on them. We tend to think about them over and over again, and then we stop short. Oh, Lord, help us not to do that. Bring to mind the gracious and merciful Savior, Jesus Christ. Bring to mind that he showed his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. Renew our minds, Lord. Renew our thinking in that truth. May we replace our negative thinking with the truth. And Lord, for those who do not know you, I pray that you are doing a work in their heart that they would know the love of Jesus Christ, that they would know the peace that passes all understanding, that they would know the promise of eternal life, and that they would know that our Savior is coming back one day to take us home. And Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.